Support for this podcast comes from JCPenney. This holiday, our in-person gatherings may be a bit more intimate, and our virtual ones bigger than ever. But no matter how traditions change, what's most important is celebrating special moments with the people who matter most. JCPenney has all the best gifts all in one place, making it easy to send your warmest season's greetings to loved ones near and far. Looking for the perfect gifts for everyone on your list? We'll be back soon with some of our top gift picks. Joy, comfort, peace. JCPenney. Welcome to the show, everybody. Since you're hunkered down, make sure and check out my documentary, Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics, available for free on Amazon Prime. You can also check out some of my old comedy and stuff on, on Spotify. You can check out some albums there. I believe Amazon Prime has my old special mating season. Uh, it's not my favorite work to date, but uh, it's it's something. It's there. But uh, I have all, all, sorts of, all sorts of good stuff through Comedy Central and um, things like that that I'm quite proud of and i also have uh these shows on youtube so if you're used to listening to these on audio um if you know people that uh if if you uh if you want to check it out on youtube if you know people that typically watch their podcasts on youtube i'm starting to get into that and it's going to be it's going to be slow going to get that up to speed you know i would normally have like a six month plan to kind of try to get people watching a a youtube channel but this is uh uh I, I need things to happen a lot faster than that. So anything that you can do to help would help me out tremendously. Leave some comments, likes, share, anything like that that you can do. It helps support the show. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast, another special pandemic edition of my science podcast, Here We Are. I am comedian Shane Moss. I have in my old profession, back in the old world of live entertainment, I traveled around the country doing stand-up comedy, and everywhere that I went, I looked up fun, interesting scientists to tell me about their work, a lot of, uh, a lot of social science stuff, a lot of why we behave the way that we do, and, and now that there is a pandemic happening, there has never been a better time for people to take an interest in science and to start learning how it influences the many aspects of their life. And so I'm, I'm collecting as many different perspectives as possible to have a look at what's going on. Today, my guest is Nati Agarwal. She is the professor of marketing at Foster School of Business at the University of Washington. Nati, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Shane. Yeah. I'm glad, glad to be here. This is amazing. We, we got a chance to meet before, but this is the first time you being on the show. I'm excited um, uh, to have you. And what I've found fascinating so far, uh, not to be too redundant for the listeners, but because of everyone's different fields, everyone has a different lens through which they see all of life. And so this is a really interesting opportunity to take the same situation like a pandemic 
and see all of these different lenses and point of views and way in which it's impacting our lives and what we could maybe learn about the future and ourselves um, from as many perspectives as possible. So just so just to kind of give people a sense of your lens, um, why don't you kind of share a little bit of your background and what you do? Yes. So I am a consumer psychologist. And what that means is that I look at people's behaviors, uh, particularly related to consumption. And I think about the psychological factors that shape that behavior, as well as the psychological responses that uh, we have after uh, engaging in those behaviors. My specific interest is in health psychology. So how is it that we think about whether we are at risk for something? How is it and when is it that we adopt prevention behaviors? How do we respond to ideas of detecting diseases or conditions? And what kind of emotions do we feel when we start thinking about ourselves in the context of a disease? I am not so much into looking at patients. Um, but more about looking at normal consumers, um, someone who presumably is in the larger bucket of things, sort of conceptualizes themselves as a healthy person. Mm. But uh, how do they process um, health risks and uh, opportunities for them? Um, so my work intersects with thinking about, of course, marketing and consumption, but also um, thinking about risk, emotional reactions, what kind of motivations do we have and how do we read the social work around us? So, yeah. So I you have, have been nothing prepping. to say about this topic at all. <laughs> yes. What can I say? Uh, as you would say, here we are. <laughs> here, here, here we are. You, uh, well, this is amazing. You've been, you, you have, you've been training your whole career for, uh, for this very moment. My career, yes, I, but I'm feeling just as lost in this moment as anyone else. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, quite, a, but I will say that um, it's been so amazing to watch the variety of responses on parts of governments, organizations, companies, and people, right? Like in anyone's friend circle, for example, you can just see the different ways in which people's opinions are shaped and um, shaped by both uh, regulations as well as sort of uh, what we are hearing from people. So it's been a fascinating, I wish it wasn't as good a case study. I wish we weren't in the situation, but now that we are, it's been fascinating as a consumer psychologist to see some of the things play out. Yeah, I mean, well, we're, we're going to get to get to learn a lot of uh, things that will help us in the, in the future as well. Um, man, we 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 don't we don't have a sense of how this is going to play play out. There might be related events in, in the future, and in, in terms of even if we get through this uh, with as minimal bumps and bruises on humanity as possible, that doesn't mean there's there's not another crisis potentially yeah. around the corner. It's yeah. it's funny because I've I've been a pretty reckless, carefree person my my whole life, and now I'm. You know, I, I was already starting to be a little bit more pragmatic, and I turned 40 next month. Ooh. And so I was growing up a little bit, slightly maturing, which I'm still fighting maturity um, with every bit of every bit that I can. 
but but this is a this is a real wake up call for me. Like, oh no, I am definitely not prepared for things to go horribly wrong. Yeah, I, good time to be forty, Shane. Apparently, forty is the new responsible. It's the lower than twenty-ish uh, and the higher than seventy-ish that are doing a lot of risky things right now. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah. this is, you're in the safe age group from a point of view of people are finding that 40 year olds are taking it a little bit more seriously than the 20 or sometimes the 70. Ah, so. that is fascinating. Huh. Um, are you saying just kind of in return, in terms of this particular um, yes. situation? Wow. Uh, so your timing is good. Okay, um, I have. Uh, so, uh, how, how are how are you studying something like that, or how how so, does one study something like that? Well, we can. Um, this this is a very unique situation, right? Because the data are so constantly evolving. Right. So it's a hard thing to study um, in the moment. So a lot of the data that any of us is collecting is we can look at, say, Twitter data and analyze that. Um, we can look at different. So a lot of this is being set up as sort of very fast occurring experiments, right? So if you think about the US, different states and cities have taken different legis uh, sort of levels of stay at home and social distancing measures. Mm -hmm. Some of uh, cities and uh, states have mandated them, others have requested them, <laughs> uh, others have pleaded for them. <laughs> and so um, these are setting up little natural experiments. Um, That's although their effectiveness, uh, we'll have to wait before we look at that, uh, the data. Yeah. Um, so I think for now, what people are doing is they're mostly starting studies uh, by either collecting daily diaries, collecting surveys. Um, some of the work that I am putting into place is looking at different types of interventions in terms of how do we communicate to people that they are at risk so we can get more buy-in into social distancing measures. Um, so some of my work is mostly around experiments where if I showed you, say, for example, the same exponential curve that we see a lot in the media, what are some different ways of representing that data to consumers? Mm. Um, should I show you a graph? Should I show you how numbers are multiplying by day by putting real numbers on it? Should I show you how like um, silhouette figures or stick figures are multiplying? Uh, should I show you, um, should we have people tell you their narratives? Um, which is the most effective way to communicate uh, the uh, urgency of people actually following uh, social distancing measures, for example, or mm. uh, good personal hygiene and so on. Mm. So that's um, a lot of my work is around that. And I'm just beginning to design experiments and more systematically study, but it is a very live situation. So yeah, I imagine you're kind of it, with the nature of having to improvise. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, how how do you find the balance between, um, you know, uh, trying to get as many answers and as much data as, as possible um, as soon as possible and 
while kind of maintaining um, scientific uh, rigor. Like, I mean, I just in terms of my podcast, I have to compromise. I have to figure out like, well, how how much of a how much of an increase in in quality of audio or video is worth the complications and the time and the effort and things going wrong on my guests. You know, so this is a time when we're all having to make compromises. Uh, how, yeah. how does science cope with these, uh, these many compromises? Yeah, uh, science is always sort of making the trade-offs between what, is, what are the limitations of the tools and what we can do today with the insights that we can offer and what we can learn tomorrow. Uh, so different methods also will take different uh, trajectories, right? So like I can look at Twitter data and understand right now what happens as a function of one announcement, one hour later, two days later. But eventually we will also have the ability to look at hindsight. So three months uh, from now or two weeks from now at various points in time, we'll have the ability to look back and look at that data and see what people were saying. And so also have different windows of time. So the one great thing about our environment today is that we have, we will have this huge data trove, which we can look at in real time, but we can also look at it across time. Mm -hmm. uh, so that works in the favor of science where we can have in uh, like immediate insights as well as sort of uh, long-term insights. The other trade-off is the precision of the question that I want to ask, but the question keeps evolving because the situation keeps evolving. So it's a very high cost thing to study in that sense that I might start a study trying to understand how people were adopting social distancing when the government, the, when the governor is requesting them to adopt the measures, for example. Mm -hmm. But then suddenly the governor shifts to actually mandating it. Now I can't study it, the previous scenario anymore. Right. So I do have to be very dynamic and the cost is very high. Whatever you've planned can flop any moment because mm -hmm. of some regulation change, for example. Hmm. But as a scientist, what has been exciting to me is to see how much science actually holds. So for example, one of my favorite findings in the health literature is that we have this notion that something is not going to happen to us, right? So um, beginning the 70s, or I'm even sure before that, there were like uh, these ideas that people have a very self-positive or unrealistically optimistic notion of who they are and what will happen to them. So heart disease is more likely to happen to others, to my peers, to the average American than me. Um, similarly, AIDS is more likely to happen to others relative to me. So the idea was that we estimate our risks to be lower than our peers' risks. Mm. And that's what we are seeing here, right? Like every city thinks that it's happening. This is going to happen there. Right. <laughs> it's not going to happen in my city. Yeah. Um, and it, it's caught up with us, right? Like, and and, and there, there's, there's kind of some some dark sides of that too in terms of is this kind of related to some of like the just world hypothesis stuff where where as long as you do everything we live in a just predi predictable world so as long as i'm doing all the things right 
I don't need to worry about bad things happening. When bad things happen to people, it's because they were doing something wrong. Yeah. And, and so they, they kind of deserved it. And then the, this, is, um, this is also related to the, um, and, and then there's, there's the, oh, what's, what's, the um, what's, what's the bias, which is basically like a, a good thing happens to you, you earned it, a bad thing happens to yeah. you, it was bad luck good thing happens to someone else. They were just lucky. A bad thing happens to them. Um, it's the fundamental attribution error. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then also uh, coupling that with, um, with, with our, our views of outgroups and others with the fundamental attribution error yeah. where, where um, you know, um, a, uh, so, someone in your in-group does like a school shooting or something like that and you say like well that person had a mental health issue whereas a person in an out group commits a crime or something like that you go well that group of people oh, there's there's yes. something there's something wrong there wrong yes with them um so so i mean that's going to be in, oh that's going to be in full force right now probably oh it's it's been playing out right like first it was like oh there's something about china this is happening to them yeah yeah oh it's a virus it doesn't virus. I, I, i'm so i'm surprised I'm surprised Trump hasn't also tried to call it the the woman virus too. Yeah. That'll be the that'll be the next thing. The the filthy Chinese woman virus will be his, yeah. his, uh, his next uh, term. Or the democratic virus, I suppose it's going to be at some point. What's <laughs> yeah, up? If Trump if Trump has his way, he's going to call it the oh, democratic yeah, the de the de the Democra virus. The democratic Chinese woman disease. Virus, yes. uh, <laughs> um, uh, but also within the U.S. it was the same thing. So I'm in Seattle and when it first broke out in Seattle, I noticed all these social media posts and also lots of well, like, well-wishers and friends reaching out to their friends and well-wishers in Seattle saying, uh, why is this happening in Seattle? What is, um, you know, what is it about Seattle that's sort of leading to the situation? And what I wanted to tell them is that what we have is we have amazing scientists that are seriously studying this mm -hmm. and took initiative um, to figure out what was going on. And wherever there is a population density or a lot of people flying in and out, this is going to happen. But um, I feel like all the even local governments didn't take it so seriously when it was spreading in Seattle. And had they taken measures earlier, they would have had better um, numbers to deal with today. So it's not just... Um, I mean, I'm just surprised even in the U.S. there were other cities and communities and individuals that all thought wherever it's happening somehow, <laughs> it's, there's something special about those populations. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not the case. And that's our mind playing biases on us indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one -on -one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. <laughs> I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey, 
Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Hewlett Packard Enterprise. At CDW, we get modern servers need to be flexible, flexible scalable, and predictable. I predicted you'd say that. <clears throat> okay, what would I say next? Probably something about server security. Impressive and freaky. CDW can implement secure Hewlett Packard Enterprise Gen 10 servers that improve speed and performance while reducing costs. While co- reducing costs. See predictable. IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. I predict a web address. CDW.com slash HPE. I'm in your mind, man. Now, one of the things I, I guess I just didn't even think about until you said it was this idea of like, because um, the United States has, you know, uh, we, we favor individuality so much and we have these little states, these like arbitrary borders of like, this is my state and this is your state and this football team is very good. This football team, very bad. We don't like them because we drew an imaginary. Um, but what that interesting thing that it creates, like you said, is all of these different experimental conditions. And that is that seems like a very exciting thing from a scientific point of view. But with the number of factors in each condition, how can you then because because you know in a in a dream world what you'd be able to do is say, well, in Kansas, they did this very wrong. In, in Michigan, they did this very right. And there's less, uh, you know, Michigan's doing better than Kansas because they did these two different like practices. And so what, what, what then we should learn from that is that the whole nation should do what Michigan did. But, science is the the world is so complicated and messy and full of variables and chaos um how how much of what we're learning from these isolated conditions is going to be applicable to on on say like a a more global um scale especially in terms of like a simple uh, as simple as you know what works in a big city and what works in a small city are are going to be two very different things for people Yes, um, I'm hoping that as a function of all these varied conditions in various places, um, eventually once we have data on how these places fared and what are the different trajectories they adopted in terms of interventions, uh, scientists should be able to analyze all of that data and tell us which factors with different degrees of confidence, uh, which factors in combination with which interventions are most successful. Um, That part I'm very excited about is to see that across countries, so if you look at at least the literature and psychology, a lot of it is organized by cross-cultural differences. So we look a lot at country-level differences, but not state-level differences, right? So we can think about like how American consumers think versus Japanese consumers think or how individualist societies think versus collectivist societies think. I think what is eventually as different countries deal with this virus, what we will kind of learn to figure out, what science will help us figure out is that the texture of rural communities across different countries is more similar Mm -hmm. 
the texture of dense cities that have certain sort of cultural or psychological or sociological aspects to them or economic factors that is related are much more similar, even though they might be in different borders. Um, so I think like, for example, maybe Mumbai and New York will have a lot to learn from each other mm. um, than say two much more less densely populated areas. Mm. The individualism collectivism or individualistic versus collectivist cultural thing is so interesting to see play out in different countries right now because it, it was so much more easier to get a society to cooperate with like mass social distancing <laughs> measures when they are a collectivist society or culturally they think of themselves as a group rather than each of us making an individual decision. Hmm. And so um, people are saying, why is it that South uh, Korea has such an easier time executing social distancing? Part of it is that they're also leading a lot with testing um, compared to the US, but part of it is also that um, when China and South Korea or Japan try to get buy-in for, but from individuals to socially distance, um, it's a little bit easier for them to get buy-in than it is in the US where our tendencies are much more individualistic. Now that will play around in the US as well, right? Like those of us that have an easier time thinking about it in a collectivist manner will adapt more easily to social distancing than those of us mm. who think of ourselves and much more um, individually oriented. Hmm. Uh, the interventions are also really um, entertaining. Um, <laughs> as Eventually this will make uh, good science, uh, at least for my research, because a little bit of what I study is emotions like guilt and shame and um, stigma and connection. And uh, what I'm seeing a little bit is like different countries are adopting different ways of coaxing people to adopt social distancing. Um, so for example, in the US, we are, a lot of it is mandating or requesting or pleading. And in India, for example, where there is a 21 day lockdown uh, enforced uh, just a day or two ago, uh, they are using a lot of more shaming style of interventions. Um, hmm. So it, that's also been very interesting that there is all these different varieties and eventually we will be able to figure out what worked well in which combination. Hmm. So this, what looks like variance right now is actually going to allow us to study more as scientists. Hmm. Hmm. That's fascinating. Um, <laughs> so is, tell me a little bit more about your guilt and shame research. Uh, guilt and shame, um, something that motivates me uh, <laughs> quite, quite a bit. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's something that I... It's uh, it's those are those are real touchstone emotions for me. They they really keep me <laughs> they keep me motivated. They keep they keep me working. If I'm not working all of the time, I feel like very guilty and ashamed of myself um, for it. So thanks, wholesome Midwestern upbringing. Oh yeah. Um, and um, but but what's what's some of your past research uh, on it? Yeah, um, so a lot of my um, research in the past has been to understand the texture of guilt and shame, uh, how we experience them, and therefore 
how to better uh, leverage them in a more wholesome way to get people to stay away from counterproductive behaviors. So like we designed this study with um, uh, um, more uh, mm, drinking responsibly advertising. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that people who already have a tendency not respond well to advertisements that trigger that guilt. Um, um, I'm, I'm sorry, you just cut out for a second. Can I have you just repeat what you just said? Yes. So um, in my previous research, what I, uh, one of the studies that we did looks at um, how people respond to res uh, drink more responsibly or anti-binge drinking messages, um, advertising. And what we f find is that people who already have a tendency to respond with a lot of guilt, it is better to show them messages that don't overload them with guilt mm. because I don't want to feel guilty. Mm -hmm. um, similarly with shame, if you are someone who's inclined to feel shame or is already feeling shame, I shouldn't overload you with shame because mm. you will simply ignore or psychologically block out that message. Mm. So it's, better to take a gentler approach if people aren't already feeling guilty or shame. Uh, but if people are in a neutral mindset, then we can find things to say about guilt and shame, which uh, should be along the lines of here's how to avoid guilt and shame rather than here's how feel shame or guilty about this. Mm -hmm. um, so same thing applies with sort of something like stigma is that we all are very motivated not to be stigmatized or not to be socially excluded. But if we feel threat, then we want to block out those sources of threat. And I think that's a little bit playing out in the current environment as well, right? Like uh, we are all already a little bit on the edge. We're mm -hmm. all little, uh, you know, uh, feeling lonely, feeling anxious. So overall, I would say the texture of our emotional lives has taken somewhat of a, a mild to steep downhill turn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I think slowing down on that or mixing that with humor, for example, mm -hmm. if you are going to have to say something that is... Uh, a little bit more emotionally um, threatening to people. Mm -hmm. I would recommend mixing it with something that is also empowering or is positive or is um, funny in a respectful mm -hmm. sort of a way. Yeah, I well, this kind of reminds me of, um, it's my understanding, I hope I'm not butchering this too much, but um, often, often um, depressing things in an average person doesn't, um, uh, doesn't really register in the amygdala that much, like the fight or flight. It doesn't trigger the fight or flight um, much in in a normal, healthy person. But um, people uh, like myself that have chronic depression issues, um, depressing things fire up the amygdala because depression is your main threat. And so adding to that depression is a, is a real uh, threat and, and often, uh, and this is why often people that are depressed tend to um, kind of lash out or get upset um, at 
depressing situations. And, and this is why you see a lot of comedians kind of making jokes at these like horrifically depressing because comedians are a bunch of sad clowns. And, uh, and so they, they tend to uh, make, um, uh, you know, make fun of these, these things that, you know, uh, that trigger this, this reaction um, in them. And then, and, and then normal person is like, why are you making fun of this horrible thing? It's like, that's how I survive. That's my coping mechanism. This is what I've done my, my entire life. Um, but uh, yeah, I, so I, I don't know, just, just kind of the guilt and shame stuff reminded me of that. That is very on point and also like, um, it is, I suppose everybody can learn a little bit from com comedians right now, right? If we are all a little bit laden with complex negative emotions, yeah. we could all take a leaf from just decompressing about the situation. Well, I'd be careful how much you choose to learn from any one comedian oh, out oh. there, but, yes. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I'll take learning from scientists over comedians any day of the week. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think that yeah. we do have some interesting tools and, uh, and comedians um comedians and scientists are are um pretty adaptive uh critical thinkers and and divergent thinkers and um are used to having to analyze and shift gears and and adapt and um and and that and that's something that that a lot of a lot of people that have worked the same kind of monotonous 9 to 5 job and haven't traveled much and whatnot just haven't had the haven't had the opportunity to gain that experience. So I, I think that it, that's something that, that people could learn from both um, scientists and, and comedians in a world where we, everyone's going to need to learn how to be a little bit more flexible and creative and adapt um, and change course quicker than they ever have. Yeah. I hear that uh, in case people are having a hard time with um, humor, the other um, tool for feel good that people are adopting is buying sugar and presumably consuming it. I was reading at the grocery stores, one of the aisles that is or a product that they are going out of stock very quickly is sugar, cleaning yeah. supplies and sugar. So. Yeah, yeah. We all have our different, co <laughs> but that's one side of it. I just got done doing a podcast. The other side is sometimes, sometimes when people are under threat like this, they um, they, they, when there's a crisis, people see it as an opportunity for self-improvement and, and that's, so, so at the same time, so we're running out of sugar, sugar. and like, uh, and, and like online yoga and workouts and stuff have never been more popular. <laughs> so, so you, in an ideal world, they'd be canceling each other out. But my guess is, is that the sugar people and the yoga people may, maybe aren't the same. Uh, That's, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. Different segments. Different market segments. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wanted to go back to this idea of the Twitter data that, that you are examining right now. If you, you kind of just sort of mentioned it in passing a little bit. I'm very curious. Um, I've, uh, I, I have one of, I, I, I like that scientists are able to take this uh, social media. You know, I've had past guests that use social media to understand, um, you know, whether or not it's the same person writing a tweet or how, 
verbally fluent they are or whether there's a, a like I had a guy, James Pennebaker, um, who is a, a language researcher that, that that can kind of analyze tweets and an algorithm can tell you if you're likely to be depressed uh, or if, if you were depressed during that time or if you were happy during, during that time, you know, an algorithm with, with pretty high reliability um, can predict this. And then there's other people that are able to determine um, political affiliation or personality. Uh, you know, there's algorithms that can guess your religious background and, and, um, and your, um, your sexuality, your, your income, just from analyzing some of the things that you like on Facebook or Twitter. So, um, so it is this amazing data source for people. So, so how are you using this in a crisis like this? Which, by the way, I hope I'm giving you some good data. I've been tweeting more than ever. I took like a three-year break, break from Twitter. And during this crisis, I was like, the world needs me to tweet again. They need me angrily ranting and pushing people's buttons. That's what they need more than anything. Um, so I'm giving some nice data to you. So, so what, kind of, um, what kind of Twitter studies are, are you able to do? So we, um, I'm still, this is very much in the progress for me. Um, but what I, we are, what we are trying to do is we're trying to look at the emotional profiles of um, sort of uh, looking at the emotions expressed in a tweet. Um, and there's an algorithm that will allow you to do that. And relating it to what are the um, things that you are talking about. So if you're talking about, say, social distancing, or you are talking about stay at home, or you are talking about what's going on, uh, any other intervention um, that people are to avoid, adopt, how that correlates with the type of emotion that you are ex expressing in that tweet. Hmm. And we can do this over time. And the hope is to see that as states adopted different levels, because we have the dates on tweets, um, different interventions, we can look at how the emotional texture of the tweet uh, changed along with sort of what people, what is the policies taken in that location as well as uh, what hashtags you um, used in that tweet as well. Mm. So um, this is still very much, some of it is really in my mind that we are still trying to set up models to study. Some of it is we've started scraping the data and looking at it. So this is really work in progress. Mm -hmm. But what is exciting is that because of all the social media data, uh, like I said, like at various points in time, we will be able to look at a dynamic environment and look at people's responses to it mm -hmm. the, the opportunity to learn from that is immense mm. um, simply because if you think about this like happening in the 70s or something right they, we would not have the ability to see people's immediate reactions yeah uh, outside of a tv camera interviewing someone right like yeah so, the best you have is a diary and a diary people take time and reflect a little bit and, and yeah and, and, and probably diary, tone down whatever their emotional level is by the time that i 
they write that. Whereas yeah. Twitter, people are like, this is what my monkey brain's doing right now. <laughs> that is true. Also, like there weren't as many diaries accessible as there are Twitter accounts from all right. over the world. So it's it's really like a superb opportunity, except that this is an ongoing process. I don't quite yet know. I know that there are several other scientists at the U, UW who are looking at various facets, uh, including diary studies, where you can actually look at more uh, thoughtful <laughs> expressions. <laughs> um, and um, looking at discussions on forums is, uh, once again, very different texture than, say, Twitter. Uh, looking at how Instagram posts are changing because people use Instagram differently than they use Twitter, for example. Um, more self-expression, more maybe even coping behaviors rather Much than... Much more where, positive, usually. Instagram, <laughs> That's more positive. true, yes. Like, the cesspool of, uh, what is it, that Twitter? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, some of it's still like, hey, I have a fun meme that's like slightly political that maybe I want to post on Instagram and Instagram's like, we don't do that here. It's only cat pictures. Um, (laughs) But but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, I mean, Instagram's being susceptible to all of these other variables that are like, I mean, I guess they're still reflecting society, but it's it's strange because Instagram's like this, hey, here's where I'm on vacation right now, and here's the food at the fancy restaurant that I... And, and so that's like 90% of Instagram gone. So now people are having to like take pictures that's of their like- rations and, <laughs> and like <laughs> maybe set up in front of a green screen of places that they wish they would have gone. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, coping mechanisms have like <laughs> taken off, have had to evolve, right? This is the great thing about studying consumer behavior yeah. is that there is all these interesting things that we can study. Where, whereas like, uh, whereas Twitter's always been there, like Twitter's like, you got something angry to say? We're always going to be here for you. And people are like, I have lots of angry things to say. This is terrific. <laughs> Um, I, I wonder if, so, so since you're able to use artificial intelligence to analyze emotions, might we be able to also kind of, I don't know if reverse engineer is the correct term here, um, but you use, use that method to train artificial intelligence to write tweets with the emotions that, that we, that we want to hear. Twitter is such a mixed bag. It's like, hey, I don't want to be, I don't want to feel grumpy right now. I'm going to mute this person. But sometimes I get sick of all the positive stuff too. And sometimes sometimes I need acute emergency. And sometimes I want to hear what people are angry about. In the future, you'll be, just be able to have an automatic generate. Let's see what the artificial intelligence has to say. Like, hey, I want, I want kind of a sweet one. And then artificial intelligence puts something about like kindness or gratitude. And like, oh, that's kind of nice. And, uh, and then you can be like, well, AI, what are you angry about right now? And you can click that button too. That's, that's I'm a, putting you in charge of, uh, I, we need to find a way to get you to Twitter uh, and have them plan this. Of <laughs> but someone, else, someone else take that idea and run with it. Yeah, well, I, I like it. I think everybody could use um, <laughs> some more customized content, but uh, you might be on the receiving end of fake news then, Shane. 
Yeah, that's, that, that is true. Hey, everybody, it's Elaine Welteroth, and I'm hosting a new podcast called Built to Last by American Express, where we will dive deep into the stories, history, and continued legacy of small businesses that shape American culture. Our debut season will focus on Black-owned small businesses that need our support now more than ever. In each episode, we feature the story of a Black business trailblazer that has inspired a modern Black-owned business. First up is Pinky Cole of Atlanta's food truck turned restaurant, Slutty Vegan. We'll also chat with Hanifa Muemba, the cutting edge designer behind the Hanifa 3D digital fashion show. Plus, we'll check in with Issa Rae, our modern day Renaissance woman. We hope that it encourages all of our listeners to support these businesses as well as the black owned businesses in your own communities. Tune in for these amazing stories and others on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's JCPenney here, back with some great gift ideas for everyone on your list. And they're all available now at your local JCPenney or online. Need gifts for her? Check out our selection of diamond jewelry that's sure to put a sparkle in her eye. Or help her cozy up at home with pajama separates and super soft slippers. For him, try JCPenney's grooming products like shave sets and trimmers. Or compliment his style with smart flannels and jeans from brands like Arizona, Levi's, and more. Also, stop by Sephora inside JCPenney to find top fragrances for both him and her. For the kids, shop this year's must-have toys and games for all ages. Or bring smiles to all with matching sleepwear sets for the whole family. And for everyone else on your list, share some warmth with a heated blanket, an ultra-cozy scarf, or let them decide with a gift card. There are so many ways to share the joy this holiday season, and so many ways to shop JCPenney. Visit a store near you, pick up curbside, or go to jcp.com. Joy, comfort, peace. JCPenney. Is that something that um, that you're able to... Let me... Um, actually, if you don't mind, just taking one second. I'm just going to look at... Um, you, you have a publication about... Um, emotional agency appraisals, influence responses to preference, inconsistent information. What's what's that about? It, 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 so you, you do some work about in, inconsistent um, information. Yes, uh, do, do you have any insights on, yeah, on what's going on right now, where everyone's getting a million different uh, a million um, different stories blasted at them? Yeah, well, we are all on the receiving end of preference inconsistent information. We would all prefer for us uh, to not be in the COVID crisis. Yeah. Uh, but we are constantly receiving the information that we are. Mm -hmm. uh, what we found in that paper, that paper compares uh, the emotions of anger and shame. And it's a little bit of a counterintuitive finding because what it shows is that when we are angry, uh, maybe counterintuitive, it will become intuitive once you put it in the Twitter context, but what it shows is that um, people who are already feeling a little bit angry, they sort of discount preference inconsistent information because obviously when you're angry, you're right and someone else is wrong. Mm -hmm. So that applies also to receiving any kind of uh, product information where you're being told that the product is not as good as what you formerly believed. Um, but shame, on the other hand, tells us that our opinions may not be uh, appropriate or correct as we think they are or we expect them to be. Mm -hmm. So shame actually opens us up 
to receiving preference inconsistent information uh, relative to anger. And um, so I suppose what that, if we applied that research to COVID, which it, that particular paper is not in the health domain, it's mm -hmm. more about product information, but you are making me think that we should apply that um, paper to health and see um, whether anger actually, all these angry tweets actually are more resistant to being, to receiving information about how they should change their behavior mm -hmm. um, versus maybe people that um, are more amenable or more susceptible to shame or act tweets that activate shame uh, end up being more effective. So what this would say is that in the domain of um, processing health information that is against your preferences, anger may actually be more counterproductive than shame. Hmm. And I actually had not thought about applying that particular paper of mine to health, but so Shane, I suppose you have created more work for me and oh. I can go and now oh, perfect. <laughs> study this. <laughs> well, and, and, um, and it's the nice best part about it is I've created no, no new work for myself. I've, I've just, uh, I came up with an idea like that wild speculation and now you have to go and do all of the, all of the yes, legwork. Yes. This is well, such I'm a good deal run. for me. <laughs> I will eventually create some work for you related to that. <laughs> okay. We will right. send you the paper fair to read it. Fair. <laughs> okay. 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 Uh, <laughs> so, what what do you think um, are from from your research? What do you think um, are some of the more useful tools that an individual could um, could take away to start implementing in their own lives um, right now to kind of help them um, make better make better decisions or just uh, help them understand uh, this situation that they're in um, better. So uh, I know that scientists things. don't like being like prescriptive. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I, I have been thinking about this though because um, I mean I, I it's think it's important. Yes, I, I, I think I think you know talking about uh, you know if I had to pick one thing um, so far um, that we've talked about that people should really think about is just is just our natural inclination to think that we're not going to get this and yes. that other people are and it's maybe. Uh, 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 maybe we're inclined to think they did something wrong and we're doing something right. I think that's, I think that's dangerous. Um, that's a dangerous mindset and it's, you know, ba based on some pretty old um, evolutionary conditions from that maybe existed a hundred thousand years ago that, um, that, that are um, no longer the best, um, strategies in, in our in our modern world and and kind of being mindful of where some of those prime primes and biases and preferences came from in the first place if people are able to mind uh, be a little mindful and catch themselves when they feel those biases bubble up um and taking some time before they act on them would be a yeah. good place to start 
Also, the, the problem with those biases, like, so, like you said, one takeaway is please know that you are just as vulnerable as anyone else. Mm -hmm. um, and two, as far as like, Except this idea, me, because I'm 40. Yes, of course. Yes, yes, definitely. You are such an exception. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but the biases also hurt us in that they often take us to a negative space because if we all started in this world to think that somehow other people deserve their negative outcomes, especially on something like this virus, what does it mean if you eventually do get it or a close friend of yours gets it? It's hard to be that supportive if you've associated it with that much judgment. Mm -hmm. um, and it basically fosters things like guilt and shame, right? Because we have taken a very negative sort of, a, we've loaded having that condition with more negativity than it should have. Mm. Um, so one of the ways to avoid sort of being in a negative place um, is uh, to try and think about the things that you are good at uh, so it, in the psych literature, for example, we call it self-affirmation, and it often works to help us overcome psychological threats. So if you start thinking about the things that you are good at or things that are important to you, they can try to sort of help you cope with all the negative emotional as well as health threats that exist in our sort of environment in this crisis. Hmm. So I will say that take a positive standpoint of wherever you are. It sounds like a very, uh, I know this is very generic advice and my grandmother would give the same advice as I am doing after learning all this uh, science. Um, but I do think that science does tell us that this works and it works because it counteracts the psychological threats and therefore the biases that go along with those threats. Um, so stay positive about yourself. Think about what is the good in you, what things you're good at, what are important for you. And do that for others as well. Reinforce their positive place. That will allow you to make space to process that there is a risk that's real to you. Um, that's one thing that comes out of that literature. Um, I'm trying to think about what are some other uh, consistencies that come from the preference consistency literature. And there what we find is that the more you think about things from an accuracy point of view. So when you look at information, your mind will want to trick you to interpret it in the most sort of um, convenient way. But instead, when you look at data or when you look at um, news and so on, tell your mind that you are trying to gleam as much of it from an accuracy point of view. Mm. As if you were not just looking at what should I do, but what is the right thing to understand from this? As if a, a more objective point of view rather than a personally invested point of view, because that's another way that we can overcome the emotional consequences of processing information that is threatening to us. Hmm. Um, well, that's amazing. I, uh, I, I really appreciate all of your time and, and spending yeah. this. Is, is there, is there a, anywhere people can find out more about what you do? I'll, I'll make sure and link to your site, but are, do you, do you actually participate in social media or Twitter or anything yourself? Uh, or? Yeah, I, I, I'm more of a stalker on social media because uh, okay. I am very nope. given to anger and I would like to keep it under control. Yeah, yeah. Very. Uh, 
No, so, we gotta we gotta keep you cool headed. Uh. Yes, thank you, Shane. I appreciate that. Uh, so we will. Um, I think a link to my website at the UW would be great. Okay, great. Um, and and just as we um, as we leave, I'm I'm gonna take some of your advice. I'm thinking about things that I'm good at and uh, and things that I can do to validate uh, myself. I've been getting pretty good at this nose flute uh, here. Uh, lately, so I'm just gonna play my theme song on uh, on the oh, way wow. out. Are you yeah. ready? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good. It was I'm amazing. Gonna... Oh, thank you. <laughs> wow. It was amazing, Encore. yeah. I know. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's that's maybe the silliest thing I've ever done on this show, so thanks for inspiring that. And, oh, I'm happy. Um, and I hope that we get to uh, see each other uh, in... In in person again. Yes, uh, yes. One of, one of these days when I'm when I'm back out there and and this blows over, hopefully get you on uh, stand up science or something sometime. This is a fantastic conversation, Aditha. So thank you so much. Yeah, I hope it was helpful and informative. You Absolutely. are incredible, Shane. Your range of stuff and the way you bring it up, it is fascinating. Okay. Well, I I'm gonna you're gonna make me blush here, so I'm gonna hit stop to record, and and uh, and and then you can give me more compliments when we're not recording. Um, all right, thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. Talk to you soon. Thank you all for listening. I very much appreciate all of you. I hope you are safe. I hope you are well. Um, you guys that uh, listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Star Brands Audio, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.